are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon. Welcome to Encyclopedia on this Sunday afternoon. I'm rather grey and dreary outside for maybe more than one reason. Um, congratulations, I suppose, are in order for um, elected Prime Minister Scummo. Uh, Scummo. Scott Morrison. Why are we doing this stupid short names thing? It's just, uh, uh, I don't know, I'm still ravelling my thoughts about this election. I, I haven't seen um, a whole lot of um, upsides. Uh, I mean, Tony Abbott losing his seat was very nice, but, you know, people like Peter Dutton still got their seat, uh, George Christensen, uh, a whole bunch of people. In terms of drug policy, in terms of the issue that we talk about every week on this show and have been doing for four years, uh, I'm not really sure where any of this leaves us. Um, we don't really seem to have a lot of um, uh, people that are willing uh, at that level, at the federal level, to change the tact on drug policy. We also don't have... There's not a lot of mechanisms at the federal level um, that need to be changed, but the political reality is that it needs to change uh, in order for it to happen at the state level. One issue that has been um, coming up that is an issue for the entire nation um, and an issue that comes up in each state is our roadside drug testing program. Uh, roadside drug testing program that is having more millions and millions spent on it every year, uh, which we are being told is a roadside safety program. Every other week we have a, a police officer talking about how there are all these people that are on drugs that are now being removed from the roads, and isn't that wonderful? But that's not really the truth of the roadside drug testing program. I was recently in Nimbin for Mardi Gras Festival, which was on at the start of May, uh, and I had a, um, uh, a, a panel talking about the roadside drug testing program as it exists in New South Wales, but also in Victoria and across the country. Uh, here we go now to the Nimbin Town Hall at the Mardi Gras Hemposium 2019. Hello. Um, yeah, my name's Andrew Cavasillis. Um, been um, involved with the Hemp Embassy for about 20-odd years uh, in adv- advocacy and activism. Um, and in relation to s- uh, saliva testing, we've been um, kind of onto it from the very start um, and um, been warning the government what would happen if they introduced it dodgy strategy. Hello, Sally McPherson, crazy dog lady. Um, Solicitor in the area, working in crime um, and have a particular interest in medicinal cannabis and and its very slow rollout across the country. Uh, My name is Steve Bolt. I'm a solicitor too, lawyer. I'm uh, Lismore-based, so that's not far from here if people don't know. Um, And I've been involved with the issues around drug law reform for a long, long time, 30 years or something scary like that when I think about it, and been uh, involved with the Hemp Embassy for about 20-something years. So anyway, um, and I've also run quite a few cases about this particular um, offensive offence of driving with the presence of uh, THC and a few other drugs. I'm Fiona Patton. I'm a Member of Parliament in Victoria, and I've certainly been trying to change the way we do our roadside drug testing and particularly presence versus impairment and specifically and most importantly for me at the moment is around medicinal cannabis users and those absolutely those that have a prescription Um, I just was looking at my website it looks like I've mentioned it over the last four years about 22 times (laughs) 
Andrew Catalaris. I'm a, a health practitioner. Um, I oppose the saliva drug testing as a callous backdoor way of interfering with the widespread application of medical cannabis. Right? There is not a single example of greater hypocrisy by our governments right, than to push legal opioids, which are now killing more people than all illegal drugs combined, and yet harass people with medical needs off the roads. Um, my name's uh, Della Falk. I'm from the States. I work with the organization called POW420, um, which has a lot to do with people getting arrested for simply using, possessing, um, and driving under the influence of cannabis, spread awareness about it, and talk to people about their rights and help educate them um, so they don't get in the situation of having to take a DUI in the United States of America. So a little, yeah, round of applause for our panelists this afternoon. Thank you. So a quick, uh, quick little history on where the roadside drug testing uh, scheme came from in Australia. Uh, so it was introduced in the mid-2000s after some research at Swinburne University in, uh, in, in Victoria. Uh, I've actually been in contact with that researcher lately as well because there were two pieces of research that, uh, that led to the roadside drug testing scheme. That was one uh, piece of research on the SecureTech, uh, which is the technology, the, skunk, the uh, tongue scraper that they use. And what they discovered in that research is that, yes, it can detect certain drugs. So they tested it. It was already a commercial property. They'd already done all that testing. So they sort of did it again. Yes, it works. And then they got a bunch of people high on various amounts of drugs and then got them behind a driving simulator later and said, yep, you guys are too fucked to drive. Uh, but they never, there was never any me meshing of those two pieces of research because what they found with the SecureTech is that yes, they can detect a amount of a drug at some point. And what they found was that yes, you can, you can make people really impaired if you put drugs in them in a scientific experiment until they can't drive anymore. But if you don't know what the amounts are or anything like that, then it's kind of, it doesn't really match up. But that's where this all started. So it began there. Um, and then it spread across the country. Uh, as, uh, as you know, testing for cannabis, methamphetamine, and MDMA, uh, and now cocaine in, in New South Wales only. Uh, and um, they're ramping it up every year. There's, I think they're, I'm not sure on New South Wales, but I think in Victoria it's 100,000 tests or something. Um, so maybe we, because I know we've got a bit of um, on the panel, we've got some people who have uh, uh, represented, um, represented people in court. Maybe we can start with hearing some of the stories of how this scheme affects people. Um. Um, am I on? Yes. Uh, yes, I might say a few things, and I think Sally might say a few things as well on the very same subject. Uh, the basic overview of the law in New South Wales and identical in almost in other states is uh, the offence we're talking about is to drive with the presence of a one of the nominated drugs, THC. It's not cannabis, it's THC expressed in the legislation, in saliva. Um, or blood or urine, but they only test for saliva. Test your saliva. So the... Um, uh, the swab, simple enough process, the cops stop you, they've got a power to stop and stop a vehicle and uh, require a swab. They take a swab, if that's positive, they take you to a bus around here these days, uh, or a police station, uh, do a more, slightly more, a, a different test. Uh, take, they take then a, a sample of saliva, stick it into a machine called a Dragar machine, they get a result, positive or negative. Uh, either way, the main thing is that sample goes to Sydney to be um, analysed at a laboratory. The analyst writes a certificate to say there's something present 
present or not uh, in, that, uh, in that sample. 97% are, are positive. Uh, THC is a very, very common one. Uh, and the middle stage doesn't really matter in a way. If it's positive at the police station or the bus, you'll give a, pro a prohibition of driving for 24 hours, so you can't drive for 24 hours. Um, but that's it. that's it. You don't get a charge later until it comes back from the lab. You go to court, uh, the charge is driving the presence of. Uh, there's thousands of them, uh, 8,000 odd last, uh, last year, figures available 2017, eight, just almost 8,700. 1,600, 800 or something, almost 8,000 charges. Um, about, mm, about a third of those maybe uh, no conviction recorded as a result. So that's pretty good statistics, I think, about what happens. A lot of people get off on a first, as a first offence because you get you know, the benefit of a good record, etc., cetera, um, and then you don't lose your licence. But on conviction, you lose your licence for a minimum of three months, uh, and second offence, you lose your licence for a minim minimum of six months maximum as well. The, the otherwise penalty that's a fine, you can't go to jail, you know, it's just a regulatory offence in other ways. So almost everybody pleads guilty because the offence is to drive, or you're the driver, with a THC present in your saliva. Well, there it is, the lab says it is, it's present. They measure at the lab, uh, the, the cutoff level for the reporting level that they give back to the, uh, for the lab is 10 nanograms of THC per milliliter. Uh, there's a lot of issues about that, about how just how oversensitive that is in terms of uh, what they measure. The science that supports it basically says uh, that the prosecution rely on in these cases that we have arguments about in court uh, says that um, should be for THC uh, up to about 12 hours before it is detectable at that level. Um, anecdotally, we don't think that's anything like the truth, but nonetheless, that's what the science says. And on that basis, the Centre for Road Safety has a website that says, um, on average, um, a typical cannabis smoker would be clear of THC after 12 hours. In My, their saliva. In their saliva. Blood, urine, different, okay, but in saliva. OK, uh, so I recommend that uh, everyone present who's a driver of a vehicle in New South Wales consult their uh, Google Centre for Road Safety, uh, look at the little page about um, uh, drug testing and so on. Um, it gives you the information uh, that the government tells you about it, and that is the entire source of information you'll get from the New South Wales government uh, since this scheme has been in place for I don't know how many years. Aside from those TV ads, the short videos, which have flashing lights, and the message is, we will catch you, we will catch you, we will catch you, and that is the message. Um, anyway, uh, the only defence to the charge, because most people plead guilty, uh, it's mostly a, a lot of first offence, you know, as I said, a lot of no conviction, so you keep your licence. If you get charged again, or you have a prior offence um, in the last five years, uh, you, you can't do that, you can't get off without a conviction, so you must lose your licence. So there's a lot of people who do lose their licence, and that's a very, very significant impact, um, of course, on everybody's life. So three quarters of people uh, lose their licence on the statistics. Sorry, two, uh, two thirds of people, roughly, uh, would lose their licence on the statistics. Uh, there's, sorry, without getting too complicated, the only defence is, at this stage, uh, the legal defence, while well, there's been some, we've had some success, is to prove to the court that you had an honest and reasonably based belief that you did not have THC in your system. Same law for every other drug, but let's talk about THC. You did not have THC in your system. So some of the examples of that are uh, a fellow who gave evidence to have been nine days since he'd last smoked a joint. Uh, he was believed and that was found to be reasonable. Um, We've had a recent case about a passive a person who um, 
gave us back a New Year's Eve, the 20th or something of January. Uh, she was stopped and positive. Uh, she had been visiting on a daily basis a man who had um, terminal cancer. He was allowed to smoke cannabis and he took advantage of that, I can say, from the evidence. Uh, he lived in a caravan. She spent time with him every day, helping him as a good person. Uh, and that was her case. Uh, the prosecution said, absolutely impossible scientifically impossible, we've got these studies, impossible, um, but the magistrate believed her and found her not guilty. So that's a very recent case. We might uh, quote something from that if we get time later on. Uh, but I can talk like one of those people who talks too much. I'm going to pass the microphone now to Sally. Thank you. Um, Steve's underselling himself. He's run all those matters that have had the successes with honest and reasonable mistake of fact. Um, so I just want to point that out. The only other defence that Steve sort of started to mention but didn't go into too much hasn't yet been tested, and that is the defence of necessity. And it's coming up um, more and more as a viable defence because of medicinal cannabis in particular. So if you are a lawfully prescribed user of cannabis, um, the, you know, the logic is that surely if you're a lawfully prescribed user, it doesn't mean you can never drive again because without a, a date and time about how long after use you could drive and oils, pastes, suppositories, smoking, eating and the like, um, it's having that effect. The people who are lawfully prescribed are too scared to drive. So I've got a couple of matters that haven't been run yet but are going through the courts um, looking at necessity as a defence. But they're the only two defences to this type of offending without going into the boring nature of it, what, I was, what I'm getting at. It's called a strict liability offence and that's why they're the only two that are available. So, um, yeah, I'll come to some more as we go through. Here's Andrew. OK. Um, oh, the saliva testing. Look, you know, working at the Hemp Embassy, we had a lot of phone calls here and there, and I remember distinctly a, a, a while ago, before the introduction, a, um, a whistleblower from Health Department rang up and talked about you know, they're, they're, they're trying to introduce saliva testing all over the world and, and read this Rosetta report, and I went and had a read. And we just started, or the, the first, it talks about, you know, the things are unreliable. It couldn't be recommended, all 13 devices that they tested. But in the last paragraph was about a, a six-month trial that Victorian police were, were starting. And so, you know, we, we, we kind of looked at that. But it was purely, it was a commercial attempt to get saliva testing right around the world. And it seems Australian police were the only ones who, who, who took it on. Um, I think it's very important, a lot of these things, to question everything. And so we did and, and, and looked at, you know, we always look for a money trail. And sure enough, there is a company down in Victoria that has the exclusive rights to supply Australian police forces with these devices. Um, we did an ASIC search and found, you know, that it had a history, it had name changes. And then a couple of new guys came along um, and, you know, we suspect they're ex... Victorian police. So, you know, there's all that conspiracy gets gets thrown into it. But it certainly makes sense, you know. It, it certainly brings a lot of... It makes it rational, because yeah, introducing that regime certainly is irrational. The other thing that, that you know, we, we did, you know, cuss and, and swear at the time, and I, I was quoted in the New South Wales parliamentary briefings when they were introducing it into New South Wales, that... And, and, you know, the, the warning came out that direct from the reports, these international reports, that introducing saliva testing would influence drug use trends in your country. Um, the government should be really well aware of the pros and cons that they, these devices produce false negatives and false positives. 
and that police forces would um, start doing less alcohol testing rather than spending their time on, on, um, on these uh, saliva testing. Um, the second report, the international report, was Druid, D-R-I-U-I-D, Druid 1 and 2 reports, and it totally caned um, the saliva testing. Uh, and I suppose we've had questions from the very, very start, which is still really hard to get an answer to. Are police testing, or the, these devices, you've got to split it up, the devices is one thing. Um, are they testing for residual Delta 9 that's in your mouth, or are they testing for the metabolite that your body produces and can stay in your system for, for a month or more? We still never had a clear answer to that or proof why that that would, you know, either way that would be. Um, so, you know, look, for us, we've been heavily involved. Um, you know, if, if I, you know, and the money trail, like I said, the other side of it is, if I had a company that was selling these devices and there were so many issues about you know, and questions being raised and that, surely you'd, you'd want to, you know, put your evidence out and how, how good these devices are. Um, that's never, ever happened. In fact, the testing of the devices and all has all been paid for by, by basically Vic Rhodes paying Con Swin Stowe. Swinburne, yeah. Yeah, Con paying Stowe. Con. Have you met Con? I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, this was a guy who used to do research on, you know, um, how much smarter or how much better brain function you'd have by introducing um, omega-3 and, and other, you know, dietary supplements that would help a brain and things like that. And it's obvious when, when people go looking or, you know, people go looking for a researcher in their area, at the moment our medical cannabis research doctors are all addiction specialists. They're the only ones who know about cannabis. So when this came up, they found a doctor who'd done research into enhancing brain and stuff using dietary things, and this was, you know, cannabis, you know, Amiga, so it went that way. And, yeah, interesting guy to talk to, um, but I, I wouldn't believe what he says. Anyway, um, mm. I'm going to... But, so, you know, for me, it, it makes it all rational that it's corruption, and to try and rationalise it, can, you can go down a rabbit hole. I, I emailed Con recently, who's the researcher, who back in the early 2000s um, did the research that led to these schemes, and uh, uh, we're going to meet up at some point, but he said there's a big step between the detectable levels of impairment, uh, but the epidemiolo epidemiological data generally show increased accident risk and or death related to most drugs. And again, it's that kind of sentence where it sounds like it makes sense, but the two do not follow. He's got a causation correlation problem there. And for a scientist, it's a pretty Pretty basic stuff, so I thought, you know, that's a bit poor. And, and the most important question, really, with this is that it's 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 sold to us as a roadside roadside safety scheme. It's it's sold to us as making the road safer. So the most important question is, does it make the road safer? And we don't have a. I mean, they, they they put out figures and you know numbers go down, but it's not clear because maybe part of that question is the other side: how many people are being removed from the roads uh, for they were never impaired, and how does that then affect their lives? And um, I think Adela, you might have some stories from the U.S. on how roadside drug testing has affected people in the U.S. And you've probably got there's probably similar stories around this room as well, but. Um, yeah, they just really started getting into a lot of the testing. Um, we have rights, though, so 
they can't just make me do a saliva test, um, but they could take me to a hospital, and a hospital can take my blood test. Um, you, unlike you all, we're not going to go through a fine. You're going to go automatically to jail. All they need is reason to, they can say they smell cannabis in your car. Once they say they smell cannabis, they have reasonable cause to search your vehicle. Once they search your vehicle, if they find it, you're automatically going to get an impairment. You're going to get possession. They're going to search your car. They're going to confiscate your car. They're going to arrest you, throw you in jail. Um, you're going to have three days that you sit in there before you even see an attorney. We have a 99% plea deal nationwide um, because people want to get out of jail. Um, David Jessup from Arizona was sentenced to a six-year sentence for cannabis DUI. Six years of his life, he's now a felon, can't get regular jobs, can never drive, can never have a driving job. Um, you do lose your license, your insurance goes up, um, and all because you know you consent to a search or because you're driving with cannabis. So I advocate on making sure people, you know, due diligence, make sure your cannabis is in the back of your car. Never consent to a search. We have an evidentiary hearing. If, if you don't consent, we can go to an evidentiary hearing and possibly get the charges dismissed or at least the evidence dismissed. So there's a lot of things that people don't know. You can drive in and out of different states and you have different compliances that you'll go in and out of um, depending on what the states are. If you're within 100 miles of our border from either Canada or Mexico, you're now under federal jurisdiction, meaning you have absolutely no defense to cannabis, which you had, you had mentioned medicinal, uh, a medical necessity defense. I'd also like to argue and urge all countries to start with the biological necessity defense with the discovery of the endogenous endocannabinoid system so that it, this defense just isn't related to medicinal purposes, but for recreational purposes because we all have an endocannabinoid system. So maybe just because we've touched on it a couple of times, and I know down in uh, in Victoria, um, you've got uh, an amendment to the uh, tram, very exciting sounding transport legislation amendment, Better Roads Victoria and other amendments, Bill 2018. Um, but do you want to tell us a little bit about? No, thank you. Done? It it, it's, um, it is exciting, Nick. It's very exciting, <laughs> and I um and okay that that amendment bill was actually about. Um, uh, curbside parking, but I thought it was a great opportunity to bring in random roadside drug testing. Um, maybe not opposite to the bill at all. However, I did put up amendments, and they were very simple and very specific, that anyone who had a prescription for medicinal cannabis would have an exemption from the testing for the presence of you know, they would not be exempted from impairment or under the influence if, if that could be proven that, the, that there was reckless driving involved. But it just said that if you had a prescription for medicinal cannabis, then the mere presence of it was not a crime. And, that, and that's quite common. You know, if you've got a prescription for Ritalin, if you've got prescriptions for various other substances that may get picked up in roadside testing, the fact that you have a prescription for that, for that substance um, gives you an exemption to, to that position. So it's a very simple position. And, and I think it's so important, and I suspect all of us in this room um, know of people who have a prescription for medicinal cannabis who are now too afraid to drive. 
Um, I know of people who've refused a prescription for medicinal cannabis and stayed on opioids or stayed on benzodiazepines because they can still drive. Um, and this, this is not help, it's not helpful, nor is it, it, nor is it healthy for those, for those people. When I put up the, the amendment, um, the, the government was appalled and shocked and horrified and um, voted against it. Uh, however, what they have given me is um, it, they have allowed me to start the conversation with the roadside safety organ, uh, authority. Okay. So that 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 is about that that conversation is now starting to happen. And I think you know there is a movement, and I think this is probably the first step that we will treat medicinal cannabis like any other medicine, and we will exclude it from um, random testing, which generally isn't random. So as an aside to uh, those who might have a prescription for medicinal cannabis, uh, there is still that issue of people being caught, removed from the roads when they're not impaired, uh, which could really mess up people's lives, especially if driving is a big part of your job. Um, wondering, this is open to the, to the panel, but uh, I know that in parts of the US there have been uh, some technologies uh, played with to try and uh, find certain amounts of cannabis and then find a similar correlation uh, that we see with, um, with alcohol and motor control. We know, you're probably all aware as well, that it doesn't quite correlate the same way, but uh, maybe some some uh, some thoughts, some information. What 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 do you think? Can do we I need speak, a new uh, device to yeah. breath test people can, for cannabis? Can I just, I'll, I'll just speak really quickly as a politician. I mean, one of our problems is that it's very difficult because of the per se that we do with alcohol. That 0.05 is now, you know, widely believed that 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 equals impairment. Um, but we know with per se testing for THC that that doesn't necessarily mean impairment. And I know a number of states have now rallied against that. States in the US have rallied against that notion of, of per se. I don't know where we're going to go in Australia because we led the charge on alcohol testing. We led the charge in that area. So... It's going to take a real rethink for us to look at whether we can do per se. I mean, at least doing per se, which is saying if you have a certain amount of THC in your system, you are then considered impaired. It's better than what we've got now, um, but I don't think it's actually adequate. Uh, if I could just add a bit to that from what I know about it, which is as lawyers' understanding of science, so bear with me a bit. Um, the 0.05 level, there's a high correlation, um, study after study after study, full of repeated science that says uh, twice the risk of being involved in an accident if you've got 0.05, uh, 0 0.08, 0.15, it, it the likelihood of you being involved in an accident increases, and there's a little bit, pretty, some pretty good correlation between those numbers. With THC, as Fiona has just said, there is no evidence that I know of, no study I know of, that even attempts to look at what sort of levels, um, at what sort of you know, at what sort of level of effect it might have on driving capacity. They're just two separate worlds. Um, so yes, it's uh, it's it's not there. My suspicion from um, hearing from the same expert uh, pharmacologist for the police uh, on many, many occasions. It's become uh, quite an amusing professional relationship we now have, Dr Pearl and I. Uh, she routinely gives the same science, uh, scientific report for the government that there's been over half a dozen studies about, uh, I'm sorry to be a bit boring, but this is the stuff that they, that they, they say. Uh, there are half a dozen studies involving THC um, and driving and saliva testing, the presence of, of THC and saliva. Uh, you know, and 
one of them had four people involved. The next one had, and they could get you know, results up to about you know, 12 hours or whatever. Uh, then they got about, um, second, they did the same thing with 12 people. Different sort of study, different kind of setup about, you know, they get one joint, they're measured after an hour and so on. They're, people haven't never smoked before or whatever. Uh, another study of people going into rehab, so they got to hold these people you know, to, in rehab centres to uh, have their saliva tested and so on. So there's, you know, there were about 20 of them. Altogether, there were about, I think, 60, sorry, 44 people in the studies that the government relies on, 44 uh, subjects in, not real life, but in, you know, uh, though in various situations, rehab or um, whatever. Um, the, the one they had in passive smoking, they had, uh, a, one case where there were eight people locked in a van for about three hours. Uh, half of them were given a joint each, and other, other people just had to sit there. Must have been an interesting sort of trip. I don't know if they were driving around or wherever, but Amsterdam, I think this one was. There was an Amsterdam coffee shop one. Uh, you know, half a dozen people. Uh, so all these studies, and the scientist says, absolutely, no, they can't possibly be in, uh, have any THC present in their system after maybe 18 hours at the outside. So people say, no, two or three days, you know, no, no. Anyway, uh, but that's the science. That's where they, that's the science. The science is how much can you detect? How long does it take to detect a, minus, a, a minuscule amount, really, of THC in your saliva? The answer seems to be around about 12 hours, and that's it. Nothing about, and the, the people, the, the government authority that did a, a review last year, the National Road Safety Body, whatever they're called, um, did a review on the subject, did not raise the subject in their report, did not say that they were thinking about looking at the subject of any relationship between what is being tested for and impact on road safety, impact on impairment, relationship between this and that. Um, who knows? Who knows what any kind of reading for THC of in your saliva means? Who knows uh, in terms of your capacity? If it's high, low, if you're a regular smoker, probably you've got a, high, a higher level than people, people who are not. Um, if you're a regular smoker and a regular driver, you're probably a regular driver in the sense of you're pretty good at it, for goodness sake. Andrew. Uh, I've been around long enough now to remember seeing uh, the old police test where they put a chalk line on the ground and you had to walk heel to toe or close your eyes and touch your nose and things like that. Now, they might be a little bit antiquated, but the basic principle is to test for impairment because this whole level of tying impairment to drug levels misses out on the critical thing. I mean, the critical thing in impairment, as well as gross intoxication, is fatigue. For instance... Right? You, you can, say, drink alcohol, you can wait for your alcohol levels to go, or you can have a bad hangover, you're impaired. Right? So it's a very simple matter. We don't want to go back to the chalk lines and touching your nose, but it's a very simple matter with a, a, a screen to test someone's yeah. reflexes. I've got the Druid app on my, on my phone. Too easy. Yeah. Okay. I, I think it's funny. That, I think it's funny that we're, we're talking about impairment with cannabis as she lifted her phone. You're probably more likely to die having people on the road with a cell phone. You talked about safety. Are we really making the roads safer? I think it's ironic. So on impairment testing, apparently it is a thing that still happens in, in, in Australia um, very, very irregularly. So the police do have the ability to do impairment testing. I don't know much about it. I have seen some numbers recently that um, uh, I can give you a vague indication of because I wasn't meant to reveal the numbers. But uh, of the, um, uh, I think it's about 50,000, 60,000 tests that were conducted in Victoria, uh, there were, I think, about 150 impairment tests. So that's probably an indication of when a police 
police officer has seen somebody and gone, no, I think you might actually be dangerous on this road today. So that's what's that? That's a tiny percentage of the overall number of people that are tested uh, and who might return a positive. Um, but police are, and I don't know, you might, you might have, uh, I've, I've failed a couple of drug tests before. Uh, I had to go up to Queensland and, and uh, I, well, actually, I haven't heard from New South Wales yet, so that's nice. Uh, not in Victoria, so I keep my home state nice and, nice and clean. But um, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's uh, the police officer told me both times when I was speaking with them that I'm clearly not impaired, because if I was, they would charge me with something else. Um, but anyway, sorry, go, going back to um, uh, the... Uh, uh, I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Impairment Where were we? Impairment. <laughs> Impairment, yes, thank you. Yeah. If I could um, <laughs> return Nick to the room. I meant that. It's that short-term memory loss thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dangerous yeah. for yeah. Yeah. driving so microphones. I wish so, so much. much. <laughs> yeah. We absolutely do. Uh, the, uh, Nick's right. There, there's two separate offences, a different provision of the, of the, um, of the Act, um, which is the beauty of um, Fiona's amendment to just the legislation only about the, the part of the Act that affects impair, uh, uh, presence of. The other provision would just stand alone. Um, they, they don't do the chalk on the road. It's, it's all done on um, officer observation. Uh, you, went, you drove through the stop sign, you, you know, you're yeah. driving erratically. The police observe your bloodshot eyes, your you know, crazy speech, your inability to stand up straight. That's when you get done for a DUI. So they don't uh, have a, a test like they, that they run No, they through. don't do anything. It's not like you... Well, not like you see on TV, or those sort of reality TVs that are not real mm. uh, TVs, because it's all American and whatever <laughs> and British. Uh, no, they don't do uh, that. Well, not in my experience. They probably do occasionally, but that's not the sort of routine thing. It's more on just observation of. And historically, that's the offence that's been around, change the numbers and so on around. But before they did um, uh, random testing for alcohol, that's the law, driving mm. the influence. So it's kind of the old law. They've added the alcohol rules to that. Now the drug testing rules, but that's the old sort of law, and they still use it. You know reasonably often enough. So I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit, but it's kind of um, pro prohibition via, like, it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, a witch hunt in this way that it's, it's capturing people who use drugs but aren't necessarily impaired. And let's maybe discuss the random nature of these drug tests. Uh, so I attend, I, I volunteer with a, a program called DanceWise in Victoria. Uh, we go to a lot of festivals and provide harm reduction, crowd care. Uh, and guess what? There's nearly always a random drug test there. Um, how random. Quite, yeah, yeah. No, they're quite clear about, yes, it's not that random we are setting up in these locations uh, and that it's meant to be for road safety. And they'll come out and put this in the news. And, oh, we've, look at how many lives we've saved by getting these druggies off the road. Um, but um, let's talk about that, that targeting a little bit. Obviously, up, up here, I, I'm not sure what I, I see news that, I, that comes out of here, but... Um, how, how is the program up here? What, what kind of stories do you hear from people? Uh, how random is it? Uh, <laughs> war stories. Um, I, I guess, you know, anecdotally and from what I've heard at conventions, and I, if I can just stop before I forget um, and draw your attention to the United and Compassion website, Fiona, you were there too. Ian McGregor gave a great speech. He's a scientist from the Lambert Initiative in Sydney at Sydney Uni. He did a fantastic speech about the testing that they're currently doing for impairment and driving and how long um, THC stays in your saliva. It's really worth checking out. 
when we talk a little bit more about honest and reasonable mistake of fact as a defence, it's worth having done a little bit of research into these kind of things. Um, but you want that in your Google history, don't you? You do want that. Yeah, in your, right. <laughs> you want, exactly. So that's United in Compassion. Um, that was a medical cannabis conference a few weeks ago. Um, just on that, I guess just two things I would say there um, about the targeting, and that is... Um, Lads, um, sort of between 18 and 40 years old, particularly driving a ute, um, they're a favourite of the police. So if you're male, between, you know, teenager to about 40, you're a target. And, and the other one to be very aware of is that the police in New South Wales certainly have an automatic um, plate recognition system in the highway patrol vehicles. So I'm finding that a lot of people who have been um, tested positive that the police will test them again and again and again because their number plate goes into the system, unlike drink driving, which doesn't have that same... I don't think the plate goes in, but your number plate goes in the um, AN power system and you just continue to get tested. So if you're a male um, between those ages, particularly in a ute, or if you're in the automatic number plate recognition system, you can expect to be tested. And I've had a client who was driving her cousin's car and unfortunately, he'd been caught for cannabis a few times. Um, she had cocaine in her saliva sample, so she was detected for that. But um, that was a bit unfortunate. Aren't you worried thus then creating like a... Aren't you thus then worried about creating a medicinal cannabis program? What's to stop your government then from giving local law enforcement the names and the license plates of the people who would get into the program? So you're like, oh, ding, 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 ding. There's all your patients and you're just... Which is why we want the exemption. But I think that's really interesting. When I put the amendments up, they said, oh, well, people would misuse that. And I said, what? They would try and get a prescription for medicinal cannabis so they could use cannabis recreationally. I said, do you have any idea how hard it is to get a medicinal cannabis prescription in this country? Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's, it's frivolous and it's stupid that, that they would run those arguments. I, I do um, want to say that we have a lot of racial profiling in the United States of America. Louisiana, a state of my country, is the prison capital of the world. They have like 7%. They should have that on their number plates, shouldn't they? It, it right. is. It Literally, it's the worst place to be. They have like 7% of um, African-American descent, but they incorporate 90% of the inmates. So, yeah, like it's really bad and, and, and obviously dreadlocks. And, but you're just going to get... That's, I just I can't imagine. Is there any protection that you're going to introduce possibly if this happens to protect Well, the that's patients. what I'm saying, that the amendment would protect anyone with a prescription. Which just, uh, when it comes to prescriptions, we've now, it's, we, it's been lawful since 2016 um, for medicinal cannabis in Australia, and it was a very complex system. Has anybody in the room tried to get a script for medicinal cannabis? It, it's incredibly complex and... Um, dysfunctional, the system. So it was one of those give with one hand, take with the other. Um, at least it's getting a little bit more streamlined now. And there's about 4,000 people in Australia who've be five now, is it? 5,000 5, approvals, whether that's patients or. Pro oh, it's about five, over 5,000 approvals, but we don't know whether that's patients or actual products themselves. So it could be one person on a repeat, things like that, yeah. What is the I've heard there's 4,000. <laughs> yeah. Hang on, are we... Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so are we, we have... It sort of goes in two strands. 
It's sort of loosely two strands to kind of think about. On the one hand, this is how I like to think of it as a tree diagram kind of thing. On the one hand, you've got the Office of Drug Control and they tend to administer the licensing, distribution, growing, importation, exportation of medicinal cannabis. That's down that arm. And on the other side, you've got the Therapeutic Goods Administration and they administer patient access and patient management in the medicinal cannabis scheme. So we're, we're, that's for medicinal cannabis. Do we know how much uh, uh, the roadside drug testing scheme costs us in Australia, in New South Wales, in Victoria? Um, who can we start with? Uh, apparently the government doesn't know um, because I asked <laughs> them. And <laughs> I asked them in me. what's called uh, Accounts and Estimates commission, Committee and that should have been information that the police commissioner who was in attendance, the police minister who was in attendance and the various senior public servants who were in attendance and none of them could tell me. Interesting. They, they had no figure. Hmm. And Steve? Oh, yeah. Hang on. Right. Microphone is a talking yeah, stick. In, in, in terms of the money, yeah, like I said, we, we've chased that a fair bit. PathTech, the company that PathTech Diagnostics, they were just a small company selling disposable lab equipment and rubber tubes and stuff. Um, it's a pretty small company, yeah, they were at less, I think, one or two million dollars. I think this year they're on track to nearly get 40 million dollars, and that's because you've got um, um, just an incredible increase in the use of those saliva tests. Each of those tests are about $50 the government pays, and then you've got the, 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 um, the uh, Dragar machines and the consumables, the, um, the, uh, the little fridges that go in the highway patrols, all of that comes through Pathtex, the, and the... Um, the the uh, the Winnebago's, which have been modified specially by Path. This um, you'll be pleased to know they're off the road in Victoria. Yeah. They found that the brakes didn't work. <laughs> Apparently, you know, the drug testing worked really well, but the brakes not so good. So this... they've actually had to pull 14 of those multi-million-dollar Winnebago's off the road. I think there's a, there's a deeper story here around um, drug testing and the industry that supports drug testing in the workplace, uh, the, the licky sticks, like all of this, but we don't have uh, a huge amount of time, so we won't get into that, but I just want to, like, that is a conversation um, that needs to be happening a lot more, especially with the encroachment of uh, roadside, uh, sorry, of workplace drug testing into workplaces where it's not clear that being impaired at the computer is going to be, uh, uh, and it's, again, not about impairment anyway, uh, and then you're getting this kind of Orwellian weird thing where corporations are kind of putting themselves forward as like, oh, no, but we're going to help you get better. If you take drugs on the weekend, well, we want you to live a healthy lifestyle to be an optimal employee for us. And that. But we won't get into that. I want to get some questions. So uh, any uh, hands? Oh, yes, Adela. Uh, grab the mic. Um, I just blanked out. I just forgot to ask <laughs> Is this program um, um, available, like, if I created the drug test, is this something that we're bidding for, the government? Do you give this contract? And is it, is it annual? Because that could, you could find out some of the costs that way. Yeah, yeah if, if we had the same public tendering process that most of the U.S. states have, we would understand that. But we don't have a public tendering process, and particularly around police equipment. Um, police equipment is... Um, very much a in-house case, and um, yeah, it does. It Retire opens a lot of police, question, yeah. questions for that. I have another question. Can you record them um, drug testing you legally? Of course. Yes. And you could post it up without violating any of yeah. your rights. 
Okay. Yep, uh, here, come, I'm coming with the microphone, please wait. Who are you pointing to? Just before that. Back the, here? The, the, on the way to the next, the first question, the just way. to correct that last, legally you cannot in New South Wales record audio without the permission. You can okay. video uh, the uh, police. They will all have uh, body cam now. They've got all this equipment. They're like robocops more and more. Um, but they'll, they'll have recording. If you want to keep the recording, just tell the cop you want to keep that recording, please, and they will keep it. And you okay. can do visual. Yeah. You can, you can do visual, yeah. Uh, first question. If you get pulled over, you go positive, that test, they send it away. Do they actually take a DNA sample of that as well and record that against you? Because I've got suspicion they have. They could, but they don't. Well, there's absolutely no evidence that they do. There's no, uh, you know, they don't. Okay, we're coming around for another question. They've got question to be charged here. with a major crime to have DNA taken, doesn't it? <laughs> Uh, well, it depends sorry. what state uh, you're in. Uh, there's, a if, if the there's a legal process to get your DNA um, if you're charged with certain offences and so on. Uh, so they can take you to court. Uh, this is the legal structure. Uh, so if they want your DNA, they can do that. Uh, but in terms of police, uh, the police database having the entire citizenry's DNA on a database, they'd love it but they don't have the authority to do that. And uh, I, I doubt very much whether they're, it's Orwellian as all that, that they're using these samples. Um, it's pretty routine. There's um, 100,000 uh, 100, a year. The New South Wales government, uh, in terms of the cost, uh, just organised, I don't know how the, what, how the contract is organised, if they're paying it all up front or what, but uh, 300,000 tests over the next over three-year period. Uh, each of the swab kits themselves cost 60 bucks per swab, plus there's the police time of dealing with them, uh, the police time of hanging around, you know, stopping drivers who are going to test uh, negative, etc., etc., uh, as well as the positive ones, or the court time. Um, it's a, a very large expense, and for, those, for people who think it might be a revenue raiser, it is absolutely not a revenue raiser. It's costing them a bucket. Question. Yes, we've got uh, lawyers on the stage defend and prosecute, politicians pass the laws, police enforce the laws. Do you ever get tested during your job? And will you ever? No, and, I, and I'm talking about yeah, the police as well. I, and I think, it's, I think police are tested. I, I am not tested. And, um, I, yeah, I'm not tested. And, and, in fact, there was we actually had a debate about this five years ago, whether we should be tested, particularly around alcohol. Uh, but I know also from the profiling, you know, I was driving to an interview and I was stopped by a random alcohol and drug testing unit in Melbourne, and they tested me for alcohol. They didn't test me for drugs because I was wearing a suit. Ha ha. So, the Sorry, moral of the story is always keep a suit jacket in the back seat. Just get that on. On that, I had I've been stopped, and I had to ask to be tested for drugs because I actually wanted to go through the process. <laughs> so many of my clients do. So it returned a negative result at the roadside and I asked if they would then take me into the bus so I could see the Dragar. And, and there's a bit of a question mark about the storage facilities after the test. So that second test is called the Dragar 5000 machine and that's on the bus or at the, uh, the cop shop. Um, so I wanted to go A, go through the process and B, see how they were storing the, the tests at the other end. But the police refused to take it any further and the Ballina police, of course, now know me and go... Go away, you know. So I could almost pretty much have a big scoob and drive straight through, and I wouldn't get tested. Oh. 
a oh. delay. Yeah. I have a question. Is there anything that um, will protect people from the government? Maybe like you just mentioned storage, or can you all keep this as DNA and sell it to companies later? Is this something that might happen in the future? I don't know about that, but the storage I was talking about is about whether or not it actually affects that test result yeah. and whether it's being stored at a certain temperature. So I don't know about the DNA aspect, maybe Steve does, but I'm just talking about the storage. There could be an action in there somewhere, a successful defence, um, but I'd really like to get in and find out if they're just putting it in an esky and it, apparently that's not being stored so properly. Uh, further questions, Kat? Uh, uh, well, I was just going to also, I think this is true, maybe you know. So in the this US, they <laughs> can't actually, this whole random stuff that goes on does not happen in the US, right? As, as in you have to, for instance, be driving badly or... Not true. You know, it, not true. Not okay. true. Actually, uh, my state just in Missouri, they actually just passed medicinal. And on 419 and on 420, the uh, state troopers and all of the highway patrol were actively stopping people for drug driving, specifically for cannabis. I did not go anywhere. Uh, I have two Can questions. I, yeah. um, oh. Firstly, uh, there are a number of people who are taking CBD oil for therapeutic reasons, and it has supposedly no or very, very little THC. Would that show up on a driver drug test? The science on that's hard, but I'd like to ask a question. Does anyone here aware that we can get access to the test and be testing ourselves so we can have a personal no, level? Uh, the company... Because that would answer your question very well. The, the, the police use a short tech... Secure tech. Yeah, secure. The one the police use is not the one you can buy. They have all the other ones. You can buy them, but not that one. And I believe you can buy Dragar 3000, but you can't buy Dragar 5000. Can I yeah, just make a comment on that? I, I think it's um, when I've spoken to, to, to prescribing doctors, that they they feel that they must advise their patient not to drive. Um, it's, I, I think that the op, the chances of that patient um, failing a saliva test uh, would be very low. However, if that that patient was to be in a car accident, then the the, the 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 blood testing or urine testings that might that might go on after that may put may put that patient in. So the doctors are, I, I think, pretty much saying to anyone who is prescribed that driving's oh, no, that, that is a condition. to be considered. That is a condition. You cannot use um, the use of this, and it's not really a prescription either. We've got to, I, I really hate that we we use that word all the time. If you have a look at the wording on the documents that you're given if you do get some of this cannabis. It's not a prescription. It's, a, it's, it's, it's an experimental drug that this doctor is trying on you. It's unregistered. It's unlicensed anywhere in the world. And, 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 part, and you cannot use uh, the use of this as a defence if you get caught driving. So I think... But police can circumvent that, again, just by... We believe that they ask people, are you using cannabis or, you know, and if the person says, well, I use it for medical purposes, the cops say, are you prescribed? And the patient says yes, and they just simply don't test them. And so, you know, um, but, you know, at a corporate level, I mean, all these companies wanting to do medical cannabis, I mean, why would you spend all that money if you 
patients are going to, you know, eventually, if the product you're making is going to make patients lose their their license, I think there's still a, a lot of a lot of ambiguity and confusion about, you know, medical cannabis, these devices. As I said, you know, you've you've heard my rave on it right from the start. It's just corruption. So trying to rationalise any argument around it is is sort of it's this rabbit hole. But suffice to say that the laws were written knowing that, you know, they were going for the per se zero. Um, Saliva, um, urine and blood tests were developed scientifically. They do have a, we have an Australian standard cutoff for a, what a positive test for THC. All of that just got left behind. When they brought the laws in, there was no hemp seed food. It was still illegal. Hemp seed food, legally, there are maximum allowable limits of THC and CBD in hemp seed food. That, that issue still has not been put to bed. State authorities have still yet to get their legislation and, and regulations and enforcement around hemp seed food, where a New South Wales health or food or health inspector can go to a shop, have a look at all these hemp seed foods, have a look for a number of things, um, that there's no hemp leaf on the product, that there's no mention of THC or CBD, and that if they test the food, that it will not exceed the MAL, the maximum allowable limit of, of THC or CBD. Uh, as far as we know, um, um, government departments around the country are conducting, are, are, are being, doing a survey at the moment of all the different government departments that have anything to do with hemp and hemp seed food, asking them what they're doing now. Um, there's these really obscure federal departments. One's called C S E A space W G. It's a working group, but yeah, so they're they're still trying to get that. Um, up and going. The stumbling block is, as was for about eight, nine years while Australia was, you know, while they were trying to get hemp seed food legal, was that police at a state level were influencing whole of government's responses to Canberra about the approval of the food. Hemp seed food wasn't approved because governments wanted it to. Hemp seed food was approved because they couldn't stop it from being approved. Um, they, they exhausted every avenue to stop it. It, 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 it got through, it was approved um, in May 2017. By November 2017, that's when food was about, allowed to be sold. But in that six month period, those state governments were supposed to do, get their regulations in order. We're still not, we're, I, I imagine we're still a long way away from that. Did you say you had a second part to your question? Uh, yes. Um, Let's say you've, uh, it's been, been a while since you had a joint. You think there might be a tiny bit of residual THC in this system. Is there any way of beating the test? I hear about people cleaning their teeth or having lemon juice or, you know, all sorts of different things. Is, I mean, it might just be conjecture from a lot of people. Is there any research on that? There's, a, there's no research, but there's a number of N equal ones. I've just had a nice feedback from an N equals one uh, coming into town today. Heavy smoker with a recent ingestion um, with an apple cider vinegar wash. So I don't want you to rely on it, but th there's an N equals one of effectiveness. What I wanted to ask Andrew, your upcoming trial, can you give us, <laughs> can you give us an update on that and how can we help Oh, look, I, I'm, I'm being represented um, in, in that one. Um, I was targeted. It's my second time around. I was targeted. Um, I went to a cafe in town. I left. Um, undercover cops straight on to me, you know, pulled me over. Um, they went for the breath test um, and then straight for the 
for the saliva test. They asked if I'd been using cannabis. I said no. They said, we just saw you at a cafe. We walked by and we could smell cannabis. I said, well, I obviously I get exposed to a lot of cannabis in NIM, but I'm you know, around it all the time. Um, and, and, you know, by, by chance, I own one of the biggest hemp seed food companies in the country. I, I grow hemp, I mean, you know. Um, no, no, it doesn't matter. He, they just really wanted to do that. Um, and, um, yeah, so in this time, I, the first time I represented myself, this, this time I'm, I'm being represented by Steve and um, his um, excellent um, associate. Um, and, yeah, really looking forward to, um, you know, trying to express, I suppose, for me, uh, you know, we just have so much going on, my, my raves are so long, but trying to, um, you know, push the, push the debate along and, and if we can get a bit of a win in court that, you know, on a point that I might find obscure but, you know, a, a, a judge might find, you know, really relevant, really relevant in it all. Um, ultimately, I still just want to tell the judge, hey, this is just corruption, this is nothing. And when we talk about, you know, medical cannabis in that respect and the, de the development of these devices, they couldn't get cannabis. Just like we can't get cannabis for medical and scientific research, just like doctors and politicians and medical professionals say there's not enough research that's been done, it's still that bottleneck. But um, when Con Stowe wanted to do the saliva testing to, to, to bring um, these devices into Australia, they went to the one lawful source of cannabis for medical and scientific research in the world, and that's NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse in the US, which supplied them with joints. Um, the, 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 the genetics, the lawful genetics that make these lawful around the world, um, back then was owned by Monsanto. They always have, for 45 years, they've owned these genetics, and um, they grow them every second year at the University of Mississippi, and if any government, researchers and whatever from around the world want a lawful source, um, they go to NIDA. The thing about NIDA is they only supply and fund research into the negative consequences of its use, not medical beneficial purposes. So, you know, there's still such a long, long way to go um, around the entire debate. I mean, even when we talk about medical just quickly and just so people, you know, maybe shift your thinking on this. Governments don't own cannabis. All they can do is talk about changing laws that would allow companies to come and develop these drugs, a situation that's not happened anywhere in the world. And we're expected, and we're going by on the assumption that the rest of the world has left the door open for, for Australian companies. And, and look, when you look at the details about what's happening in the US and Canada and, and, and Israel and the Netherlands, everything is not what it appears. And although it might appear that everything's kosher in the Netherlands, the fact is it's illegal under the federal law. Um, same in the US, whatever you see near, it's illegal under federal law. Canada, Canada's been drag kicking and screaming on medical cannabis. Um, the oils that we're bringing over from Canada now, which are getting cheaper, and obviously are going to affect any Australian company's ability to compete. Um, but uh, the, these products, the Canadian government um, was trying to stop those products. In 2015, the Canadian government lost a high court challenge. They were insisting that if you want to use cannabis for medical purposes, you have to smoke high THC cannabis. The Bef High Court found... Sorry, I was going to say, just before we continue on, I know that we're getting close on time. Ms. Guidance... Can, um... can I just quickly say, United in Compassion, just to reiterate what Jenny said, United in Compassion and the Lambert Institute's work and Ian McGregor's work in particular on this is very useful. I recommend um, going and having a read of that 
Uh, it's it's really great work on saliva tests and you know the sort of after so many hours and what you've taken and what you've eaten and etc. I bet it'd be just interesting to see what cannabis they got and where did they get it from and whether it was individual molecules or, or you know, that, that so I, I hope that there's one thing we all learn from this today is that unless we all take individual action and start writing to your parliament or your representatives or voting actively, that none of this is going to change. If we sit idly by and allow the government and allow uh, the bureaucracy and the police department and to continue to do these things without being upset, without recording it every time, without sharing the injustices, without sharing your story, this is going to continue to happen. If you share your stories, you guys can stop this from happening to the rest of the world. Let people know that this is happening and be prepared that this could happen in other countries. So share your story, take action, write your representatives, call them, take a picture and, and send it to this beautiful lady and let everybody know that we're not going to allow this tyranny and this genocide to continue to happen. We've got a little bit more time for, uh, for some questions, but I want to just remind you uh, that this is being recorded for a radio show that I do on 3CR in Melbourne. You can also access the podcast uh, at the website, which is 3cr.org.au, if you uh, want to pass this conversation on to a friend or something like that, because uh, as Adela says, that part is important, contacting your MPs. The other part... Speak to your friends, speak to your family about it. Speak to people in your community who might not uh, be clear on what's going on because the road safety message is the message that they're pushing out there. That's the message that they want to get stuck and it's the, uh, they, they, don't, they don't talk about the, the, the fact that they're not detecting impairment. They just, they just correlate the two. They just say these are all impaired drivers. So you need to meet that message and remind the people around you that actually that's not what's going on. And people might eye roll you a little bit at first but there are... Uh, plenty of resources out there and maybe um, if, if anyone has any resources that you can um, uh, tell us about now uh, online especially um, where people could go and get some information about how this works to pass on to your friends, to your family, colleagues, etc. Uh, does anybody have any I think we had one mentioned before but any other um, good resources? Uh, look, look I'm, I think we should get back to questions but if I could just add to that yes. uh, there is a case coming up for um, uh, a near and dear friend of some of us, Michael Balderstone, the uh, president of the Hemp Embassy, uh, has somehow or other, surprising to all of us, uh, fallen foul of this particular legislation. Um, he shouldn't be driving so much, but anyway, he did. Uh, so we're, we're running a case, which is, jokes aside, we're running a case about the reasonableness of the law. We're taking a, a different approach on that case. Uh, and our, our legal argument will be in terms of a administrative law, powers of parliament, and stuff kind of argument, which is very tedious to talk about in a way, um, that the law is um, uh, effectively invalid. Uh, we expect to lose in, front, in the magistrate's court. We think our case is reasonably uh, sensible uh, as a lawyer, so we might appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, the main point of why we're doing it is to draw attention to the law, uh, to put that argument in, the, in a public place. We're going to be um, going public about this kind of now. Michael's given me permission to talk about his case, so I should say, had for ethical reasons. Um, anyway... Uh, so we're about to uh, get some... The case is not till the end of June, so we want to sort of think about the staging of it. Uh, but there will be um, an argument in the public place, particularly if you go to the Supreme Court, probably two stages. You know, the uh, publicity continues for more than a few months. Uh, so hopefully we'll be able to bring the public's attention to just how unjust, really, the impact yeah. of this law is. I want to ask a question of the two lawyers, if that can be answered. And then... Um, <laughs> 
There's, yep. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, it's a question someone would ask. There's always an issue in court, right, and there's a dilemma, and we face this with the medical suppliers, between pleading not guilty and fighting it and pleading guilty and taking the discount that comes with that. Like, basically, I, I was confronted with a positive saliva test and I, I said to the magistrate, he said, how do you plead? I said, I'm pleading not guilty, but I want a section 10. And he said to me, well, you can't get a section 10 unless you plead guilty. So I said, OK, I'm guilty, I'm pleading guilty, I want a section 10. And he said, you can have it. It was like a farce. What, but what's section 10, quickly? Section 10 is facts proven, no conviction recorded. Therefore, no loss of licence so no and things license. like that. Okay. Hey? Just saying, so what? no loss of licence, that's the significance of it. Say again? No loss of licence, no conviction, yeah. so you what, keep your licence. What's your advice? Conviction's a technicality. It way. puts people in a, a dilemma between doing what's right morally and ethically and what's right from a personal protection point of view. Um, Probably someone in the audience has got a question as well, but I'll say very quickly, uh, it depends on the personal circumstances. Running the defence available of honest reasonable mistake involves more time and cost uh, and delay. It takes you know, months um, and a bit of stress. Not easy going to court, even if you've got a good case. Never easy to go to court, let me tell you for a fact. Uh, so not many people want to do it. Uh, secondly, it's, you'd have to have an argument that makes some sense. Just th uh, a lot of people, most people, typical case, Lismore Local Court on a Monday, five or six of these every week. Typical case is two or three days since had the smoke, got a pretty good record, um, da da da, that's it. That's all the police say anyway in terms of what's, what's discussed. Uh, so most people plead guilty because what are you gonna do? You know, if it's your first offence, you, uh, you get off. If it's not your first offence, you don't get off, but what else are you gonna do? Um, just on that other than, oh, sorry, other than have this really, really complicated legal argument that unless you can prove that you had a reason to think that you had no THC present in your saliva, a reason to think that, and, you had a, and, that, and that was honestly held, so not just bullshitting, you're telling the truth, um, and you'll have an expert uh, on the other side who says, the science says not possible after 12 hours, um, person telling a lie, don't believe them. Of course the science says this, they must be lying. And Sorry, just because things are actually probably going to get worse before they get better. In New South Wales in May this year, the legislation's changing so that if you um, are detected as low-range PCA drink driving or under Section 111, this offence of having cannabis and oral fluid sample, um, you'll, you'll lose your licence for three months. There's no court attendance notice. Um, you won't be going through that process. You'll simply be detected, second test the test down at FAST at the forensic analysis in Sydney will come back and you will simply get a notice that you've lost your licence for three months and you've been fined. So you will be convicted. So at least at this stage, people are going to court and one of the big upsides um, if to pleading guilty is that you get, if you plead guilty early enough, you will get an automatic sentencing discount of 25% in New South Wales. So the magistrate will say, thanks very much for not wasting the court's time. You've entered a guilty plea nice and early, a couple of references, no priors, you're not messing this around, we'll give you 25% sentencing discount. Whereas if you plead not guilty and lose, you don't get any discount. So that's one of the upsides. So just also, yeah, bear in mind law change in New South Wales from May. Question. Uh, thanks for a fascinating discussion. Um, at the risk of going down another rabbit hole, I just wanted to pick up on something that Andrew Catalaris mentioned at the start. Um, can you, or does anyone know, to clarify, if the aim of the roadside testing is safety, um, 
can I be chock full of legal opiates and benzodiazepines or is that detected as well on the roadside mm. test? The purpose of the testing is not safety. Now, even the police admit that it's not an impairment test at this stage, it's a compliance test. And it's one more big giant step towards pharmacofascist system that we're being forced to live in. I don't know what the situation is with medical opiates. I presume you just have to... That was, that was a good word, pharmacofascist. Just pharmacofascism, put that one in your brain for later. Well, Sorry, look, what, what is pharmacofascism? It's banning the quality plant drugs and pushing the synthetic drugs. Well, actually, we didn't... Sorry to interrupt everyone for a second, but we didn't quite touch on... We touched on that a little bit, the, um, the sort of unintended consequences of this. And I've seen from the perspective of um, going, going along to the festivals uh, that the, the trends of the drugs that people are taking at a lot of the festivals across Victoria have shifted. Um, so people aren't smoking cannabis as much. They're not taking MDMA. Uh, but instead, they're um, having things like uh, GHB or one of its analogues or uh, ketamine cocaine, those three in particular actually synthetic seem to be a, synthetic cannabinoids? Well, yes, the synthetic cannabinoids were a, a, a big they deal, especially for the workplace yeah, drug testing. Synthetic don't show, yeah, cocaine. And this is, these cocaine are the unintended consequences. People don't stop getting high because of, of that. They, they just find a different way to get high. And is that good? Uh, is that bad? I, I think going back to the question, one of the, when we ask these questions of the police, they will come back with a statistic which is that 70%, I think, was the statistic they gave to me of, of road fatalities. Um, when they did their drug testing, they said in 70% of the cases of road fatalities or serious injury, drugs were detected. Now, when you, look, when you actually break that down, because and you look at most serious road injuries are, occur with generally young men between 18 and 25, and when you look at the... Um, prevalence of drug use in our community, it's young men between 18 and 25. So there, I don't think there has any, been any really good research that would, end, that would answer your question. What we're seeing is um, two and two and getting five. There, there, there was a little bit of research in... Because the Rosetta Project or the, yeah, and the Druid reports, they were done in Europe and they actually did, were tried testing for other drugs as well, especially on sensitivity. But opiates, um, benzos, and another one of the pharmaceuticals were the most reliably detected by the devices. Um, and, and cannabis was still the most subjective one too. So, yeah, it, it really is... Um, yeah, but again, it was a warning that governments were given and why most governments, by and large, most all governments never took on saliva testing um, or the, the strategy was that it would, it would influence drug use trends um, in a negative way. And, and yeah, and look, and, and more recently I see, you know, the, the, the pill testing um, strategy. Look, it's a great idea and everything, but, you know, while you're still going to have sniffer dogs and saliva testing and, you know, just have now pill testing, of course more kids, more young folk, more people are just going to go to drugs that, you know... Yeah, it is a bit like, yeah. you've broken your arm, bone's sticking out there, let me hand you a Band-Aid. Give it a little bend-aid. Use the mic, Adela. I guess the good news is if you're a young entrepreneur or an entrepreneur, there's a, a niche oh, <laughs> that needs yes. to be filled. So There is a can... niche, and I know the companies that are doing it, yes. and I consider it a little bit... Oh, I don't know. There's, in, in Victoria, we've got... Uh, maybe I shouldn't name names. 
I don't know. They sell the, they sell tests because uh, and they're twenty or thirty dollars um, a test, so that people will test before going out. Very lucrative business because they can make hundred, two hundred percent markup on it. Huge money in it, and now they've got the whole uh, festival scene in this kind of habit of like, oh, we'll go and do the test. So they're making money off this shitty situation. Just feels a little, and they're not putting it back into the community or anything like that. It's a very profitable thing for this or young like entrepreneur. A, or like a lozenger that'll help you pass the drug test. But this is horrible, right? So we're having to like create gray areas and loopholes so that because you use the plant, like that's crazy to me. But yeah, take action is really all it really boils down to. Another question? Yeah, we've uh, we've let's do two more. So this is the second last one. Thank you. Um, you mentioned racial profiling and Australia is expert level at that. This is a penal colony. So um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but in Australia, um, a lot of legal, legal aid um, organisations or um, just help for people, support, the only way they can get funding is if the people plead guilty every time. And so that sometimes they are given a trade-off, lose one thing that probably didn't exist anyway and take that one, take the rap for that. And um, with regard to DNA testing, you don't actually need to test everybody in the whole country because once you have one person's DNA, then you have a record for their cousin and other family members, especially if you're a minority group. Is that right? Yeah. Does anybody have... That was just, is that right? I have no idea. I guess so. Ask a geneticist. I've, I've been given the microphone. I've got no idea either. Sorry. It's difficult to, um, look, it's difficult to say honestly about uh, some of those situations. There's a lot of suspicion. Um, our uh, a dealer visiting from uh, uh, across the ocean is no doubt gobsmacked about how much lack of transparency he's heard about on the panel tonight. Even members of parliament can't find out what's going on, for goodness sake. There's just so much we don't know. Uh, the way that our legal system, our political system uh, is structured, there's so much. Does it, we don't even know who gets to lobby government until about a year later. Then they say, oh, we had a meeting with the minister you know, a year ago. Oh, great. You know? Anyway, it's just impossible to find out. So understandably, people have suspicions about what government does, but um, I can't really say beyond, beyond that. Uh, and uh, so, by the way, things are sort of like getting together for the Combi Convoy. So we're going to have one last question and then that's all happening. Oh, I'm so sorry. We're going to have two. Marie has been waiting. Um, Bob's going to do one first. Yeah, I believe this is a, a saliva test. So you may put a thing in your mouth that actually cuts at a cellular level and it is full of chemicals. So who is a copper to make you do that when it's not sterile, it's been dragged around in a car, in and out of police stations and wherever. So can you just spit on this thing or do you have to go through their protocol? I can speak a bit. The way it works, Bob, is the thing is it's in a sealed alfoil bizzo. It's sterile. Then they bring it out and they, they, they tear it in front of you. And then they take it apart. There's two parts, all right? The reagents, again, you know, you've got to go back. It's an American company that makes the reagent and it's a German company that made the delivery device. In the handle part... Globalism. So the bit that goes in your it's mouth, trendy. okay, it's sterile. It, it's just pulling a bit of... There's these two little ramps and as you drag it, it takes the saliva up onto these two pads which then make an indication whether there's, whether there's enough saliva there. There's two parts to the handle of it, and the, the, the officer has that away, but once he puts them together and cracks them shut, 
It breaks the vials of reagents, which shoots them up onto the pad where your saliva tests in, and then they wait for the, re the reaction or the reagent to do its thing. So if anything, it's on the police. Now, as a hemp grower, years ago, we tried to get these reagents to do in-field hemp, hemp testing. Andrew, you could probably speak about the toxicity of reagents. Yeah, very toxic. Like for us to use them, we'd need goggles and gloves and overalls. Um, these cops are holding them in their hand. I, I'm, I'm assuming it's safe, but, you know, there could be an accident. I'm, I'm sure there's some kind of procedure for them to get rid of those devices um, once they're spent in a, in a very safe way and contained manner. Um, yeah, just, just as I said, there's, there's just questions all over this. Uh, yeah. And I think our... Um, because, yeah, you can deny and say, I'm not going to do that, but I think our lawyer friends can tell you what happens next yes. when you do that. <laughs> so you can deny it. What happens next? I'm not doing that. Yeah. You get arrested. There's no doubt about that. I've stood up to them. You know, you get five minutes of monosyllabic answers where they just you know, wave this at your face and mm. then they start rattling the handcuffs. <laughs> uh, and the, the power to take the sample comes from the legislation. The police have the power to do that. Uh, and... Um, it's defence to not comply with that. The um, word random appears in the title of that section. It is not the words of the section itself. So the police have a power to stop for and require a swab, for a uh, saliva swab, for any reason. That's not The word random doesn't appear. So that argument, oh, that's not really random, they're picking on me. Probably they are, uh, but it's not unlawful for them to pick on you. And, and one last question. One, two, Steve Bolt, please. Steve, hi. Okay, one of your most recent cases in the Lismore Court that involved a woman saying, I had not taken any form of smoke, yet I showed positive, and Dr Pearl was put on the stand, if I understand it correctly, and she started talking about that capsules or oil was not showing up in roadside drug testing. Can you please speak to that? Uh, yes, that's true. Uh, Dr Pearl, the government pharmacologist, said that... The only, it's, uh, it's a bit sciencey. Her argument is that the consensus of scientific opinion is that uh, THC remains in saliva only from as a residue of what you've smoked or eaten in a cookie or whatever, okay? That it does not come back through your system. So therefore, once the saliva in your mouth is gone, which she says is around about 12 hours or so at the time of your consumption, there should be no more THC. So that's an argument, okay? Uh, so th that's what she's arguing about. But, but, but in the course of evidence, because we ramble on in court sometimes, just like we do in the Nimbin Town Hall, and the magistrate was interested and asked her a few questions, and I asked her nothing to do with anything, we were just asking her questions. Uh, on another occasion, I might just interrupt this story. On another occasion, we were just having a similar sort of rambling conversation, and she made the observation that she was on the committee that led to the introduction of this rule in New South Wales. 15 years ago, whatever, she said she was against it, it was all just nonsense, it's nothing to do with road safety. Everyone else on the committee, whoever they were not named, uh, whoever else was on the committee said, oh no, it's good, we'll, we'll cut down on pot smoking, we'll do it for that reason. Anyway, this is by the way. So in this particular case though, she said that um, it's not possible. Uh, if you took um, cannabis by a capsule, THC in a capsule and swallowed without the capsule opening in your mouth, or used it as a suppository, which the magistrate knew and I didn't, was called shelving, Anyway, um, <laughs> if you take uh, cannabis without putting it in your mouth, um, is, uh, would not lead to any saliva being uh, exposure of your saliva to THC, therefore, would be zero. 
But the sad uh, thing The magistrate made the comment in his judgment against that evidence, basically, or against the, uh, the, the real part of the case was, could she rule out? She said impossible for a passive smoker, this is a passive smoking case, impossible for a passive smoker to have any THC in their system after about an hour or two, maybe a couple of hours. Probably 20 minutes, but maybe a couple of hours. So therefore the woman was lying. Right. Anyway, so that was the main part of the case. In the judgment, the magistrate commented that uh, the, the consequence of the government's official position is it depends how you take the stuff. Whether you are going to test positive or not, it depends how you take the stuff. Shove it up your bum, go ahead, my friends, uh, and you will not, according to the government expert, test positive to a saliva test in New South Wales. Believe yeah. it or not. That's a good, good evidence. place to end oh, oh, no. on. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Not That's very punny. Point. But uh, thank you all for coming this afternoon. As you've seen, this is a much longer and broader discussion with a lot of little tidbits that we could go off on. Uh, if you want to hear some of those discussions, 3cr.org.au, follow the links to Encyclopedia, and you can go and uh, hear other discussions with a lot of the people here. If you're in New South Wales, um, check out what uh, David Shoebridge is doing. I'm not sure what other MPs are up to as well, but I know that David uh, works hard on these sorts of issues. And write to your local member as well. Speak to your friends, speak to your family, speak to your colleagues about these issues and find the facts. Uh, I'd like uh, to thank our panellists this afternoon as well. Uh, Andrew, Sally, uh, two Andrews, one Sally, one Steve, a Fiona and an Adela. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you, Nick. Uh, the Hemp Embassy also has a wonderful YouTube channel, the Hemp Embassy YouTube channel. It has all of these great talks on it. So for the past um, four years... Pancho's been slaving away here and we've got a lovely little editing team that even travel from overseas to help us. Um, so, yeah, just check out all the talks and at least within two weeks of this event, all these talks will be up online as well. So simply go to YouTube and, you know, type in Hemp Embassy. Recorded live at the Nimbin Town Hall for the Mardi Gras Protestival at the start of May this year. That was the roadside drug testing panel that you just heard from and there is a little bit more to that panel that will be up on the website and psychedelia.org. Subscribe to the podcast, follow us on social media, enjoy the rest of your Sunday and Queering the Air is up next. See ya. This is Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. Our aim is to present the diverse intersections of psychoactive drugs and society. If you are concerned about your own drug use or a friend's drug use, DirectLine provides a free and confidential counselling service 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-800-888-236. In Psychedelia, we'll be back on 3CR from 2pm next Sunday. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear In Psychedelia Live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.